0: I know it's poor form to start an audio medium by referring to a picture, but take a moment, if you can, to Google Child Skull X-Ray. I'll give you a second to absorb that. If you got the same results as me, you should be looking at a truly upsetting amount of teeth. Humans are born with a second set, which grow from your jaw as you get older pushing out your baby teeth so you can leave them under your pillow for 50p a pop. Obviously, we've known about this for as long as we've been humans, but it wasn't until the advent of x-ray technology we got to really see what that looks like in practice, as it happens, inside our own heads. Without wishing to veer immediately into the sombre and the grotesque, prior to that, the only way to see what the teeth looked like in the calcium waiting room of the jaw was was to clean and polish the skull of a deceased child, so I'm glad we've now got technology which allows you to be horrified by your own mouth while it's still firmly capable of moving under its own power. I've been thinking about baby teeth a lot recently, as we stumble through the wreckage of the past decade and into a new, terrifying world. Are we going to grow back stronger? Or have we already used up all of our chances? I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. If you go to Charing Cross Road, Roughly halfway between Leicester Square and Tottenham Court Road tube stations, there's a traffic island in the middle of the street with a grate set flush in it. If you look down through the grate, you'll see something unique. A blue road sign reading Little Compton Street, inexplicably embedded in the brick wall beneath the ground. The subsurface installation known as Little Compton Street is, in fact, a utility tunnel which runs roughly parallel to old compton street before curving round towards piccadilly circus these utility tunnels are all over the city and are normally full to bursting with pipe work and cables of unknown providence the veins and arteries of the city encased in miles of uncompromising brickwork it's rare for these tunnels to be visible from the street and even rarer for there to be anything particularly notable to look at through the grates where they do briefly surface. So this little bit of misplaced street scenery has become something of a point of interest for tourists and urbanites in the know. What's most interesting about the sign, however, is there are no records of it ever being put in place there. It wasn't an official installation, nor was it ever approved by the people building this tunnel. The most obvious explanation is the simplest. When Little Compton Street was absorbed into Old Compton Street above ground, a builder kept the sign and, wanting to preserve a little London history perhaps, or hoping to add to the quirky array of signs and place markers used to navigate these tunnels, put it up on the wall with a little wet cement. Over the years it's become fairly well known. A site of pilgrimage for urban explorers who try to find ways to break in and take photos of the angle from below. So good on whoever installed it, I suppose. The trouble with this story is there are extensive photographs of the construction of Charing Cross Road and the utility tunnels below. And in all of these photos, not once are you able to make out the sign beneath the street there wasn't even a blue road sign for Little Compton Street above ground for someone to relocate. In fact, the first mention of the sign appears in late 1966, when a swinging London tour guide lists it as a stopping point on the way over to Carnaby Street. A photo from this brochure, taken through the grating above, shows a blue sign poking through the brickwork, but it's a little different to how it appears now. The letters are smoother, rounder, and the sign itself seems to be more deeply embedded in the wall, somehow, with a slight curve to it, as though some mysterious force is pushing it out from behind. The bricks around it are crumbling and cracked, and the sign itself seems oddly clean, given the level of air pollution which was, and remains, endemic in London. In the years which followed, Little Compton Street maintained its reputation as an architectural oddity, so it's fairly well documented from that point onwards. I took the time to research and organize copies of all the photos from the intervening years, and when they're all laid out side by side, you can see the sign gradually morph and change like a flip book. The font becomes more angular, the sides more pronounced, and the brickwork around it heals like scar tissue. It all leads to one impossible conclusion. Little Compton Street wasn't built, it grew. Little Compton Street isn't the only organic place in London. Once I knew what to look for, I started seeing the signs all over the place little out-of-the-way corners where the city grows in on itself. The remainder of Great Swan Alley, which connects Moorgate and Coleman Street in the square mile, contains an abutment which appears to have grown out of the neighbouring building, oddly curved and out of character with the surrounding architecture. It mimics the style of the rounded drop pavements nearby, only rotated by 90 degrees and sort of unfinished looking as though the concrete is trying something new, based on an existing pattern. If you've ever seen a picture of one of the middle phases of evolution, when amphibious animals first started to flipper their way out of the oceans, it reminds me of that. Some type of failed experiment, maybe? Similarly, a series of complaints to Waltham Forest London Borough Council from the 90s onwards chart the growth of a confusing series of road markings near Whips Cross Roundabout which eventually rose up to form a pavement and a series of bollards, blocking off Raglan Road from the main street. Everyone assumed it was a piece of guerrilla architecture by a pissed-off local resident, but the bollards were found to match the built environment style guide used by the municipal borough of Walthamstow back in 1956. Attempts to remove them were abandoned after surveyors established that they were securely and deeply installed to a depth of at least one metre, and local residents presented a petition to the council saying they preferred it blocked off, actually. There are even places where the city has organically rejected change, fought back against development which didn't fit the wordless intent encoded in the dirt. In the 1960s, developers trying to build a multi-storey car park on a former green space in the centre of Brixton were frustrated to find that each night, after breaking ground for the foundations, some mysterious force was filling in the holes they dug. It was put down to local activists who wanted the site used for a community centre, and a vast amount of money was spent on security and fencing to keep people out. Nonetheless, each morning, the site would be reset back to its original state, right down to the turf being put tidily back into place. Unfortunately, that one didn't stick. The company in charge hired people to sit overnight and just watch the site, and that seems to have been enough to prevent whatever forces were causing these odd events. Similarly, since the advent of CCTV, spontaneous growth events have declined rapidly, the apparatus of the security state acting as a suppressive force for these troubled organics, climbing through the cracks in the collective unconscious to protect us from ourselves. In times of emergency, though, The city has been known to rise up to meet us. I've spoken in the past about the advent of super basements across London. They've existed for years now, and are such a fixture of the expensive suburbs in West and North London that they barely make waves anymore, outside of the truly hideous excesses which occasionally appear in aspirational lifestyle columns in the tabloids. The changing face of East London, however, has led to the first inroads of the basement lifestyle into the formerly working-class borough of Newham. While still largely an area of extreme social deprivation, The London Olympics led to an influx of new money, largely in gated tower blocks or developments on former industrial land, close to tube stations but tucked away from the town centres and marketplaces which really need the investment. It's the smart homes in Ocado set, media jobs and cocktail bars, the sink or swim millennial middle class who are barely one paycheck away from destitution but comfortable enough to order takeout a couple times a week. Not one of them will ever be as comfortable as their parents were, but it's also hard not to feel a bit of resentment towards them for even approaching stability, all things considered. Anyway, they're not the ones building super basements in East London. Instead, it's the occasional transplant from the wealthy parts of town, the kids of billionaires who want to live somewhere cool and developing, and who are maybe canny enough to realise that vulturing up relatively cheap property in this part of town will pay dividends 10 to 15 years from now. A lifestyle blogger who goes by the spiritual urbanist, real name Mariah Bose petty heiress to a significant property portfolio stretching across South and East London, moved into an unassuming terrace near West End Park in 2014, To be more exact, she moved into four different unassuming terraces on either side of the street and then set about converting them into one huge mansion, connected by a gigantic sub-basement due to run underneath the main road and then extend backwards behind three other houses, also owned and rented out by her father. She was starting a family, you see, having married an old money heir of the landed gentry the year before, and was using her Instagram to document her glow up from messy working woman trying to make it in the big city to mummy blogger and luxury living influencer. The renovation of what she described in her blog posts as an abandoned East London Terrace was the first part of this project, leaving aside, of course, that the four terraces had been abandoned by her own father, who had previously been hoping to sell them to the Olympic Committee for a tidy profit. I'm getting sidetracked here, but you understand what this person was all about. In the morning of April 9th, 2015, disaster struck her building project. The tunnel beneath the road was most of the way complete, but an oversight in the planning process had underestimated the required weight load of the roof. they graded the supports for standard side street traffic, but works on the main road had led to a traffic diversion past her four terraces, running straight over the three-storey chasm which was due to be turned into her gym and infinity pool. At 8.05am, a a double-decker bus full of kids headed to a nearby comprehensive approached the top of the development site. By this point, the worksite had spent all morning being battered by buses and trucks going to and fro, And three of the five columns holding up the roof had already failed, causing the road to visibly sag in the centre. CCTV footage shows a small sinkhole, about the size of a manhole cover, opening up in the middle of the street as the bus drives over the spot where the central support pillar stood. By the time it's passed on the other side, the sinkhole is the size of a small car and rapidly expanding, and the bus loses its grip on the road starting to lean over and spin its wheels over the pit. By the time it's passed over to the other side, the sinkhole is the size of a small car and rapidly expanding, and the bus loses its grip on the road, starting to lean precariously and spin its wheels over the pit. Then, something very strange happens. There's only the one CCTV angle on the road itself, taken from an off-licence down near the corner. There's no audio, but there's a clear view of the road as it buckles and collapses, dragging the bus backwards and over to one side. A plume of debris erupts from the hole, likely one of the columns imploding under the pressure, according to accident investigators, and dust abruptly covers the lens, after which nothing further can be seen. Scrubbing through this footage in slow motion, however, reveals a brief and confusing glimpse at the milliseconds immediately after the collapse. Three frames, in quick succession. First, the point of no return. The bus's front wheels clearly up in the air, sparks flying off the undercarriage as it tilts at a near 90 degree angle, straight down into the three-storey pit. Second, the dust plume, shooting up from beneath the bus, Just at the moment it's about to plummet straight down, on its side. And then, in the third and final frame, you see the bus appear to move straight back upwards, as the dust cloud begins to rise around it, propelling it up and back out of the pit. Inexplicably upright. For just a moment, the ground in front of it appears fresh, clean, as though it was just built as though the city itself rose up to meet and protect its young inhabitants. Maybe it's just a trick of the light, a side effect of the shockwave on the capture. The bus was left upright and in one piece a metre or two away from the collapsed basement, somehow with miraculously little damage. Nobody was injured, although passengers reported a momentary feeling of weightlessness, as though they were in freefall, which... Ceased as abruptly as it started, although this could easily be explained away by the effects of the incredible noise generated by the collapse on the inner ear. Investigators afterwards discovered the houses nearby were still structurally sound, but that a surprisingly large amount of rubble had been generated, significantly more than could be accounted for by the damage to the buildings alone. The pit, which had been almost entirely empty prior to the collapse, was filled most of the way in again. After the super-basement was condemned and the project scrapped, it took barely a quarter as many truckloads of soil to fill it back in as it had to empty it out in the first place. There was one more thing. Among the destruction and the rubble, they found a street sign, somehow completely intact, for Little Compton Street. episode of subterraneans underground shopping malls and why they can't survive in the city i've been james thompson you can reach me at subterpod on twitter or by email through subterpod at gmail.com if you're enjoying this series please subscribe and rate on the apple podcast app since it really helps me getting my name out there you can also subscribe on patreon where you can get access to transcripts bonus episodes behind the scenes info from £5 a month that's patreon.com forward slash special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers Hiran and Alex who are the road that rises up to meet me thanks for listening